This week on the Off the Crossbar podcast. With a rush win, the West Division is finalized. The East, not so much as we could have five 8-8 eight eight teams by the end of the weekend. We talk about music in games, the ALL Championship, and of course, the tragedy in Humboldt. All that and more on OTCB. What is good, lacrosse fans, and welcome to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast. I'm Teddy Jenner. Yes, it's actually me. I just don't have much of a voice. Vegas will do that to me. If you want to get a hold of me at the show, you can at Off the Crossbar or email me teddy.jenner at gmail.com. Um, some other things we'll talk about. A juicy little nugget that Jake Elliott just passed my way, which I can't believe we've never thought about before. But, of course, we have to start with the events in Humboldt, Saskatchewan on Friday. And we all know of the tragedy. And we all know of the incredible work of the families of the world rallying around the hockey family in Humboldt, the community of Humboldt, raising over $6 million on the GoFundMe page, the largest GoFundMe in Canadian history. But lately, maybe it was because I was away when it happened and so the immediate impact of the events didn't really sink in. But now that I'm back, you know, in Canada, back home, able to see all the news reports and the videos and now everyone's doing the sticks out for Humboldt and all these little tributes that are going on. And I'm reading poems and there's people writing songs and all these images people are drawing up and, and concocting. And I think now it's really starting to set in and sink in. But where it hit me the most was when um, a friend of people out on the West Coast, uh, a very knowledgeable sports person, um, an immediate person named Dominic Abassi. Um, his father used to be the owner of the Nanaimo Timmerman. He, much like many of us, spent hours riding buses, whether it was minor hockey, junior football, junior lacrosse, minor lacrosse, you name it. But it goes beyond that. It goes anybody that's taken a school trip, anybody that's gone on any sort of bus ride that we've all been in that seat before. We've all been up late watching Slapshot on that bus before. And until I read Dom's words, I don't know if I really put everything into true perspective. And then I thought about two weeks ago when the Colorado Mammoth were on the bus from Toronto down to Rochester. And that's when it really started to sink in. And I've been struggling with it like most of us have. Obviously not as much as the families directly related with the incident. But it is just an unimaginable event to take away so many young lives and to rip apart a community. It's just unimaginable. And we 
desperately send our everybody, our thoughts, our prayers, our condolences to the families, to the community of Humboldt. And the image is just every time I see them. Strike me a little bit harder. To see people leaving headsets out for the team announcer, Tyler Bieber. The story of the team trainer, who also doubles as a trainer for the Saskatchewan SWAT. The coaches, the trainers, the managers, the players, the families, the billet families. I just can't imagine what any of those families are going through. And I wish them all strength and love and support. And I know the entire world is giving them all a collective hug. I watched um, a TSN story by Ryan Rashog with Chris Joseph, who was a former national cross or national hockey leaguer, and he said um, he wasn't much of a hugger before. But now every time his son or daughter passes by them, he says, whoa. Stops them in their tracks, whatever they were doing, and he makes sure he hugs them. He lost one son, and he's not going to take a chance to miss a moment to hug his remaining kids. A hug he'll never get back. But I think as we've learned through many of the other losses and tragedies we've felt throughout the sporting world is that together we can slowly help build and rebuild the strength of that bond and support our families and there were so many great tributes out there on Saturday during um, the NCAA Final Frozen Four, uh, to all the NHL hockey games, to everything that was going on. Uh, There was tributes at baseball games down in Texas where the Blue Jays were playing. There were moments of silence all over the world. And news sources all over the world covering this tragedy. But also sharing the story of these incredible kids. And I think that's the never-ending memory is how great these young men were, what courageous athletes they were, what battlers, what professionals. And they're all going to be incredibly missed. And so the Saskatchewan Rush, one of the closest to all we're obviously going to do something and you knew they would I think they're maybe a hundred kilometers from Humboldt where Saskatoon is and the moment silence was had at the rush game but I think what we'll all remember is that point during the game where the entire crowd started chanting, 
the Let's Go Broncos chant. Even better is that the referees in the game allowed play to be stopped for extra time so the residents of that chant, the residents of that chant could truly be felt. And I have been in Sastel Center when that Rush crowd is chanting, let's go Rush, and the building reverberates. I can only imagine what it sounded like and what it felt like Saturday night when everybody standing, clapping, players banging on the boards, goaltenders banging on their pads. It had to be an incredibly powerful moment. Chris Corbeil, the captain of the Saskatchewan Rush, may know the story of the bus rides better than most. Like many in the National Lacrosse League, he was a two-sport athlete, played hockey growing up, and knows the perils and the joys that can be had riding on those buses. Late nights, early mornings, cold, cold buses. The days of singing at the front of the bus for all the rookies, for organization on the bus, the the order. Veterans get on, they get to sit at the back. Third or fourth year guys on next. Rookies got to clean up the bus. Rookies got to get off all the bags. Management and coaches and trainers sit up front. Like There is such a completely different mentality of being on that bus because... It's not like a rank system, but there is a bit of a hierarchy on the bus, but it's all in good fun. And we've all been there. And Chris kind of relates to it in the fact that the Rush being a fly-in team, the bus is always waiting for them at the airport. They get off the plane, they get right on the bus. They're singing and having a good time watching film. When you're a college student and you're on the bus, you're doing homework. You're watching movies. You're playing games. We've all been there. And so I caught up with the captain on Tuesday. It was a very emotional night Saturday. So I just, I wanted to get his thoughts. And wanted to know how hard it was as the captain, but as an athlete, to be able to put the events of what happened behind him and still be able to go out on the floor and compete that night? Uh, it, it was difficult. There was just so much riding on the game. You, you know, we, we come into it and obviously uh, an important win for our team, but then, you know, this tragedy strikes on Friday night and all of a sudden it puts things into perspective and it's like, wow, with this, all of a sudden it, you know, puts a, you know, a lacrosse game, really in the perspective and makes you realize that there's, there's bigger things out there. And yeah, it was, it was tough to focus. I mean, we were, you know, all, all the, all the players that were hurt and, 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 and who passed away, they were all like airlifted to Saskatoon. So this was all happening, you know, right where we were playing and it was mm-hmm. the, you know, our community was the one being affected. And, 
our bus driver, you know, was, was a regular bus driver for them. So, you know, we saw firsthand people that, you know, had close, close ties and connections. And it was, uh, I don't want to say it was a distraction, but it was, you know, it was, it was emotional and it was tough to be a part of it. Especially, you know, you being a hockey guy, but all of us lacrosse guys growing up um, in sport athletes, you know, we ride the buses. We've been there. We've, we traveled the, the miles on the highway. We watched the movies. And so we can all put ourselves in those seats. Is it tough to just to put that stuff behind you once the game starts or as soon as that game started was the focus on the floor? No, it was, it was, uh, I don't know. It, it, it was tough to put it behind you, honestly. It yeah. was, I mean, you know, the fans were there reminding us and I, yeah, I think everybody saw the video. It was so cool. And, uh, you know, it's moments during the game like that and, and the tribute before the game. And you, you sort of realize that, you know, as a member of the Saskatchewan Rush, you were playing for something bigger than, than just a lacrosse lacrosse game or a regular yeah. season win that night. It was it was obvious. And I, I think Colorado probably acknowledged that, too. And it was, you know, a first step to healing and, you know, just a, a really important night for the community. At least it felt that way to us on the floor. So, I, I mean... Yeah, when you're out on the floor and and you're checking Noble and you know he you know the picks coming, then it's you know you're lost in sort of the minutia of it. But yeah. you know a TV timeout hits and then the, you hear the fans chanting and it's like, yeah, yeah right. you know what you're, you're you're not forgetting about this anytime soon. It, it's always tough to to put those things behind you, but you can always remember the good times of being on a bus and and you being a, a hockey guy. Um, have been on probably buses more than most. What do you do? You have some really fond memories of bus trips. Yeah, I mean it, it's it's. I mean we're we're a fly-in team in Saskatchewan, so we travel everywhere by bus while yeah. we're there, right? Like you know we land at the airport, the bus is there to pick us up, and it's the same bus line that these guys were riding. It's Charlie's Charters there in Saskatchewan, right? And uh, yeah, like you know anybody who played junior or junior hockey, college level hockey or lacrosse, they they know that you know the the bus is a sanctuary for guys. Mm-hmm. It's it's an escape. You know it's 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 time to do homework. It's time to prepare for games. It's time to reflect on games when you're leaving. It's times to to make friends and play cards and bed and watch movies and like you know some of your best memories are made on these buses and some of your best friendships are made and established in this team bonding that goes on on those buses it's like uh, the best word i can use is like that that sanctuary for players Mm -hmm. it's it's almost like a like a safe zone and uh you know to have something like this so tragic happen you know on on that team bus is uh it's pretty traumatizing like you said every every single athlete out there that has ever you know put in a good number of hours on the team bus, you know, envision themselves and put themselves in those seats. And it's, uh, it's, it's almost too traumatic to even imagine. Mm-hmm. So the focus comes back to the game and, and uh, uh, you mentioned a big game against the Colorado Mammoth, a, a chance for the Mammoth to get even closer to try to get that number one seed. What was the focus of your group mentally lacrosse wise without the, the distractions of, of everything else that was going on? Um, the focus of a team against a, a mammoth group that was sort of coming on strong late in that game. Yeah, I, I think our emphasis heading into the game was, you know, simply getting back to playing the way we wanted to play. And I think when we were preparing for Rochester two weeks prior, we obviously didn't get the result we were looking for there. Mm-hmm. And it might have been a, a case a little bit too much of focusing on the other team a little bit and trying to make too many adjustments. 
because we had, you know, lost to Rochester in our first meeting and we thought we had solved all the issues that we needed to and we were going to take a different approach and this mm-hmm. and that. And it just, we were playing a little bit outside our comfort zone. So this week, you know, acknowledging that, you know, Colorado is a fantastic team and, and probably our toughest competition in the league, we we stepped back and said, but what makes us successful? And it was really about, you know, reestablishing that and kind of getting back to the basics of, of who the rush are and, and playing to our strengths. And I, I think it paid off for us. You've obviously had some new additions coming to the team as of late. Uh, the return of Nick Phillips, I think, has been a huge boost to your club. Yeah, I agree. Definitely, definitely. Um, you know, especially losing John Lafontaine uh, in the trade for uh, for Kirk, that was mm-hmm. tough. So all of a sudden we found ourselves shorthanded when Nick wasn't ready to go at the start of the season. And, um, you know, no disrespect to any of the guys that were filling in, from, filling in for him. They, they all did admirably. But Nick, uh, Nick, Nick just fits in so well to our system. He's he's a great athlete, and he brings the energy. And he, he's just he's a pest out there, and you can you can see him you know jumping on the floor early to pressure guys, and mm-hmm. he just disrupts the other team's offense. And then on the other hand, he adds a, a level of toughness, and uh, and you know just kind of some is able to send that message to the other team when you need him to. And uh, he's he's been fantastic in his return, and obviously we're happy to have him back. I think it was a, a big surprise for everybody when Dan Dawson came over to your club. Yeah. Uh, he, a veteran leader, a champion in every sense of the word, but the little things that he does for teams, how important has his leadership and value been to your club? Yeah, it, it, and it's been fantastic. And obviously, you know, with myself being the captain in Saskatchewan, he's a guy that comes in and, you know, just by, you know, having played for Dan in the past and, and played alongside him, you know, I, I almost felt like, should I be giving up the seat for this guy? Cause <laughs> yeah. you know, his, his resume speaks, speaks for itself. And uh, he, he just, you know, he's the type of guy that whether he's got a letter or not, it doesn't matter. He's going to be a leader uh, on and off the floor. And uh, I, I think he's fitting in really well with our group so far. And it was uh, some family stuff that couldn't get him in the lineup this past mm-hmm. weekend, but um, we, uh, we were obviously very happy to have him on board, but yeah, Dan, I mean, he's, he's exactly what you want out of a leader. And quite frankly, he's a guy that I've tried to model my leadership style um, off of as best I could. Cause I, I was lucky enough to play a number of years with Dan and, and Brampton and see him firsthand, you know, how effective he can be at motivating his guys and, and just leading by example. So uh, yeah, he's a guy I really respect and is respected so well in our dressing room, and I, I try to emulate as much as I can from him. Absolutely. You, you take Dawson out, uh, I believe it was the sister's wedding that he was at, but yeah. um, you get Marty Ginsdale back in the lineup, who's probably one of the, the most underrated guys in the league right now. Um, how important is it to have those guys that are the grinders and the grit guys and, and the not-as-flashy guys that just do the little work? Well, they're crucial. And for, uh, you know, I, I think our first, maybe it was two championships, we had Jared Davis kind of mm-hmm. playing that role, and he was so great at it. And just doing all the, you said, like the gritty work and, you know, the guys that don't get all the credit, sort of the unsung heroes of the team. And Marty's been fantastic this year. And I'll tell anybody who asks, like, you know, when I, I'm always responsible for guarding the righties in, in practice. And the hardest guy to cover isn't our top scorers in the big names like Churchy or McIntosh. The, the the biggest pests or nuisances in practice is the, the Dinsdales and the Nighters. Like they're so mm-hmm. slippery, they're so quick. 
and they're the guys working the hardest in practice, which is what you love to see. But yeah, he's, uh, he's had a fantastic season. He obviously, uh, he wasn't in our lineup against Rochester and I, I, you know, obviously we, we didn't play very well against them and I think that hurt us. And, you know, he, he came back against Colorado and had a, had another strong performance and he's just been, he's been solid and he's having a great year for us. And, uh, we hope to get, you know, that kind of performance out of them. I know it'll really count in playoff time when those guys really make a, you know, their their performance can kind of be the difference, right? It can't be an easy decision for Derek Keenan when you're all healthy and who to take out of that offense. I know. I don't I, I don't envy him. And I, I <laughs> even, I, I think uh, it was Jeff McComb, our offensive coach, said to me when, you know, the lineup kind of got posted uh, two weeks back against Rochester. And he goes, Marty must think we're absolutely nuts for taking him out with the way he's been playing. <laughs> yeah, and I go, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I don't think he's the only one to be honest, yeah, but yeah, it's it's not easy because if he's not in, then you know Niter or Dawson is out, right? Yeah, and, yeah. So it's or if he is in, then Niter Dawson. Is. So it's, I guess it's a good problem to have, but um, yeah, he's uh, he's a guy that certainly earned his spot and and deserves to be out there. With the win over Colorado, you guys clinched first overall in the entire league. So now. No, you're not coasting through the rest of the year, obviously, but as a captain, how do you get, keep your teams focused on every game to make sure going into the playoffs you're playing your best across? It's a good question that I, I'm not sure I have the answer to that I think <laughs> is going to be a challenge, honestly. Yeah. I, I, I think there's there's two sides to the coin, obviously. The stress is off now and the pressure's off, and I think you know, with us trying to you know play our best lacrosse heading into the playoffs, it's I think teams, you know, naturally play better when they when they feel more comfortable and you know they're not gripping the the stick as tight. So that element of it is good. But the other side of the coin, obviously, is that you know we're these games don't have an impact on the standings or there's no real relevance on our side of things. So it's exactly it. I'm asking the question: how do we how do we stay motivated? But I think you know the focus has to be on winning another championship and just mm-hmm. emphasizing the importance of. You know, every time we're together, we have to make sure we're getting better. Because if you look at our schedule now, we have, you know, back-to-back games this weekend, followed mm-hmm. by a bye weekend where we won't be together and we won't be able to practice and get any better. Then another another weekend uh, against Calgary to finish off the season, followed by another bye. So we have two weekends left with these bye weekends in between. It's it's not a lot of time to get ready for, uh, you know, a one-game conference final. Uh, to take the West and, and and to get ourselves a chance to win the championship, so we yeah. can't squander this any any time we get together, right? It's so important that we make the most of any time we have playing. So I think that's going to be the message, and you know we'll have to work on how exactly it's delivered and just make sure everybody understands the importance of the limited time we do have together. But we uh, we definitely can't squander it. Let's take a quick flashback to 2014 when the rush were in Edmonton. How the heck did you score 17 goals? <laughs> I don't know. It's a good question. I don't know. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I had the green light. I was going, but it's not like yeah. I'm taking that away from me right now. <laughs> uh, just not say. Just such an outlier of uh, right. Like pretty consistent before and after that in the point production, but that was just a. Uh, one heck of a year. Things were going well for me. I don't know. I got to, maybe the question is who strung my stick that year. Yeah. I got to go back and look at who, uh, who did that. Yeah. That was a, that was a good year. (laughs) Uh, One more hat trick games in there, which I don't, I I can't even fathom scoring. Yeah. I I think there was two of them. And I, now I can, yeah, I'm lucky if I get an empty netter like I did on, uh, (laughs) on Saturday. 
of the empty netters. Those are your favorite goals because they're just those, the easiest ones. Yeah, but they're stressful because if you they miss are. one of those, like I fell in Rochester last year. One of those, someone just lobbed it up to me and I tripped over my feet and there was no living that one down. That one haunted me for a bit. Showed up on video, of course, the next week. Yeah, Thanks course, to Mr. Yeah. Quinlan. Yeah, yeah. yeah. You, uh, you did have uh, two hat trick games, both against Calgary, a five point night and a four point night. So. There you go. Sorry, I lost you there for a second. Oh, both against Calgary, though, I Yeah, think? both against Calgary, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I guess, hey, more games against Calgary. We reduced yeah, the, most the, the, the the series this year. It's only three games as opposed to we normally play on four. <laughs> so, that's yeah. what I'm going to play with on this year. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, before we let you go, this conversation came up uh, on Twitter this week uh, during your guys' game. And it's the, the topic of home teams using music during offensive sets to confuse the opposing team's defense and not allow them to communicate as well. As a player, do you notice the music when you're on the floor? See, it's it's interesting. I don't notice the music, but I notice the noise. So I right. guess in, in sort of answering your question, I, I think it does influence you. And I've, I've been out there at times where you're trying to – or you're hollering at a guy that picks coming and he can't hear you. So, it's, yeah. I think it definitely does have an impact on the game. I'm not going to pretend like it doesn't. But I also, I, I can't tell you when the Outcast song came on versus when they played <laughs> Eminem versus – you know what I mean? Like that – people always ask me that one when they come to lacrosse. Oh, do you notice the music? Did you think the music was good tonight? I'm like, I didn't hear any of the music. Right. Maybe yeah. during a TV timeout or something, but that's it. But I, I think, yeah, the noise – when you're on defense, you want to be able to talk and communicate, and it's 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 easy to do in practice when there's no noise, and then all yeah. of a sudden it becomes an issue when you're playing in a loud building, for sure. Corb, my friend, it's always a pleasure. Um, I, I have to give your entire organization credit for doing an, a, an incredible service to everybody that was affected by the tragedy and, and everything that's still going on in that community. You guys are great ambassadors um, for the town of Saskatchewan, the Saskatoon. Um, congratulations on getting first overall, and, and as always, thanks for your time, my friend. Well, thank you for having me on. Yeah, I, I agree. I think the organization did a great job. So, um, yeah, it's obviously tough times right now for the province of Saskatchewan, but um, hopefully uh, hopefully things only get better from here. But uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, we'll talk again soon. There's the captain, Chris Corbeil. And, again, you heard him say it, it was tough, but when you're in the moment, you're able to put a lot of that stuff behind you but it's those moments of pause where it's a TV timeout and the crowd's chanting and all of it kind of floods back again. And then you got to remember, oh, crap, I have to go and defend Jeremy Noble. It couldn't have been easy because there had to have been a lot of heavy hearts inside that building. But with sport, we use it to heal, especially the medicine game that is lacrosse. And all the funds being raised, and there's going to be, I'm sure, many more charity events. I just got an alert on my phone uh, that the Vancouver Stealth are having an auction for their jerseys. Uh, their special BC Day jerseys that they're going to be wearing, proceeds for that, are going to be going towards Humboldt. Um, again, the GoFundMe page is still racking up money. So we have to be able to put it behind us, but not forget the memories. So we do move on. And one of the questions that I asked Chris Corbeil was about music in games. And this all started with a tweet from Stephen Lobzinger. And he said, Surprised the NLL has continued to allow the home teams in the West 
to use the in-house volume to their advantage when on offense. So much for a level playing field. And it started a big discussion between many people out on Twitter about whether that had any merit or base. Well, I can shed some light on a few things, and and Chris Corbio kind of touched on it in our interview that you may not notice the specific sounds and songs and all that, but you do definitely hear the noise. But it can't. it's not just the music noise. There is also crowd chanting noise. There's also, you know, that noise can be an effect too. And I remember when the Stealth first moved to Everett, Washington, and the late Chris Hall was trying to not only get the crowd involved to create a strong game atmosphere, but to get them involved in helping the team. And he was always professing, when we're on offense, be as loud as you possibly can. And when we're on defense, be as quiet as you possibly can. Because on defense, we need it quiet because we want our defense to be able to communicate. Vice versa, on the other end, we want it to be hard for the defense of the other team to communicate. So, while Steven Lobzinger brings up a point that there are some teams that will probably crank the volume up on the stereos a little louder when the home team is on offense, I don't think it causes that much of a hindrance because regardless, you're still trying to communicate from player to player. It gets way louder when the actual fans are involved than the music. So you could take out the rock and roll atmosphere, and if you just had 15,000 people in Sastel chanting, go rush, go, or whatever you want, let's go offense or shoot, score, make up some chant, and get everybody chanting it every time you're on offense, that's just going to be as distracting as cranking ACDC up to 12. What probably gets me more irked is when teams aren't showing replays properly and they wait, and that's kind of been curtailed by the National Cross League in the last little bit because they're actually started to find teams that didn't show replays promptly enough. Now, I don't think you can actually say, okay, you can never, ever turn the volume up on your speakers past 10. Or you can't make it different from offense to defense. Like That's not something you can really regulate. I don't think it's that big of a concern as a player. Fans, maybe. But players have ways of communicating because they know the noise is going to be there. But it was a nice little debate that we had on Twitter just talking about the general ambiance of National Lacrosse League games, and it still goes back to the fact that I would like to see an NLL team just go songs music. Just let the natural ambiance sound of the crowd and the game speak for itself. The only issue being is that the turf can actually dampen the sound of the game because you don't hear the squeaking of the sneakers. You may not hear the hacks and slashes as much. But I would just like to see it be a true experiment that somebody does, whether it be in a a regulation a regular season game 
or a preseason game. Because we all talk about teams having their own identity with their crowd and their fans. Buffalo is a party. Calgary is a party. Saskatchewan's a party. But they're all different kind of parties. They have characters and personalities, and that's all well and good. I can't wait to see Chopper and the Man in Black back in Philadelphia. But maybe, maybe a team wants to come in and say, you know what, we're going to let our fans be our voice. And they don't play music. Just to see how it goes. See what people think. Because there is, you know, people at games, like, why do they play music all the time? There are also people at the games, man, I love that they play music all the time. Well, let's maybe give them something different. So as of the debate, why the NLL allows home teams to pump up music louder when their team's on offense, I don't think they allow it. They just can't regulate it. It's not like Brian Lemon can be in every single arena looking at the DJ and say, don't you dare crank that up to 12. I am watching you. Noise ambiance is a bigger deterrent for fans than it is for players. It's tougher for coaches to relay messages, yes. But usually, the captains or the top D guys are out there and they're able to communicate a little bit better. So that was the rush game. And it was a game that had a lot of implications. Um, The Mammoth needed that win for any hope. uh, But it had pretty much all been for, kind of been lost as that game got out of hand late. But as we've seen in the past, Colorado able to claw back late because Saskatchewan has this odd ability to be coasting in games and take their foot off the gas. And you heard Chris Corbeil talk in the interview, and I asked him, said, and I asked him, what's going to be the toughest part about keeping your focus down the stretch is that with those bye weeks, they may have to make sure their team is still together and on point going towards the same goal. It's going to be tough for them, he says. And having those bye weeks and then getting up for just a one gamer can truly be tough. So maybe they wish that they didn't have that extra bye week. For the Mammoth, another valiant comeback falls short against a team that they've lost, I think, five of 6-2 now in the regular season over the past two years, not including the regular se- or the playoff games last year. They're going to have to find a way inside that defense earlier than the fourth quarter. They're going to have to find a way to get to Evan Kirk earlier than late in the game. They have the ability, but it's that pressure system that the rush play that kind of puts them on their heels, which always boggles me because the mammoth defense play a very pressure defense as well, so they see it all the time in practice. But maybe it's the other end is what I often think. And that's this is no knock on the defense of the Mammoth because they are still one of the best in the league. But they got to find a way to not allow those runs that Saskatchewan often goes on. And if you can limit the runs, much like Rochester has done in their couple of their two wins that they've had against the rush, that's where they've been successful. 
And unfortunately for Colorado, they got the first goal, then they give up three straight. They score the next one, give up two more. Started the third quarter, scored two right away, and then they give up five over the end of the third and the start of the fourth, and the game's out of reach. They're going to have to find a way to not allow those runs, especially when it's going to be a one game in Saskatchewan. Because when that run goes, the roof gets blown off that place. And it's hard to quiet that crowd and just take the momentum away from the rush when they're at home. So both teams, including and Calgary, now know where they're at in the West. Saskatchewan, number one overall, will have a bye in the playoffs. They'll host the West final. The Mammoth will finish second. They'll host the West semifinal against their arch nemesis, the Calgary Roughnecks. And that may be having Roughnecks fans licking their chops because of their past playoff successes against the Mammoth. But parts of me feels like this year's different. And it's going to be one heck of a lacrosse game in Colorado when that West semifinal gets going. But the thing is, and again, we talked about this with Chris Corbeil. Since everything is settled in the West, it becomes a bit of a tinker process for coaches and general managers. What do you do with your lacrosse team over these final three weeks of the regular season? For example, this weekend, Colorado hosts New England. It wouldn't surprise me if Steve Fryer gets the start. Wouldn't surprise me if Ryan Lee gets back in the lineup or maybe even Brody Eastwood. You start to see for all three teams, maybe some depth guys getting some minutes just to give the starters a bit of a rest. Now, for a guy like Mark Matthews or Robert Church who are in the hunt for a goal-scoring race, a point-scoring race, you may not see them lose minutes. But maybe if there's some guys that are banged up, maybe if there's some guys you want to keep fresh just in case you need them down the stretch, that you get them back into the lineup, that you might start to see that from the teams out west. Because it's more important in those final two weeks to be going forward than maybe this week. So maybe it's kind of a good thing for all three teams that it's been settled this early that you can have a bit of a buffer game before you really ramp it up. And now maybe I could be completely wrong and all three teams just put out the A lineup the rest of the way. But it truly wouldn't surprise me that Tyler Carlson gets a game, that Steve Fryer gets a game, and that Frank Chiliano gets a game just over these last few weeks, just to give the number ones a rest. Before we leave the West Division, I need to give Jake Elliott props for this little nugget that he sent my way. And that is that, and I've pretty much looked as best I can at all the National Lacrosse League goaltenders. Colorado has the only goaltender duo that are left-handed. Dylan Ward and Steve Fryer are left-handed goaltenders. Now, as a fan, you may be saying, well, Ted and Jake, why is that such a big thing? Well, 
if you do the simple math, nine teams, two goaltenders, that's 18 goalies. Boom. If all but two are right-handed, that's 88.8888888% right-handed goaltenders. So when you look at the grand scheme of things, growing up as lacrosse players, 90% of the time, we shot on right-handed goaltenders. And so when you're going on a goaltender, the stick's going to be on the right side. The left side's always a little bit more open. And now when you go against Fryer or Dylan Ward or any other left-handed goaltender, it's backwards. And so the shooting is different. And so for left-handed players, far side glove is open more than it would be normally on a right-handed goaltender. And it's a bit of a psychological thing. And I, Jake and I both said, can't believe we never really noticed it before. But it's just something to watch. And it's not like I'm giving away any secrets and I'm going to get a call from the map and saying, what are you doing? How could you tell everybody our goalies are left-handed? What are you doing? I think I'm pretty safe. But if you have a left-handed young goalie, start training him. Keep him in the game because it's like left-handed forwards. They're not always the easiest to find. So an interesting little, little nugget there from Jumbo who will have the call from Vancouver this weekend as the rush come to town. But let's jump away from the NLL West and head out to the wild and wacky NLL East, where, thanks to the stats mind of Graham Perro, we could have five, eight, and eight teams by the end of the weekend. Things have to happen, but they could indeed happen. And we could, again, have one of the tightest races to the end of the season we've ever had in the National Lacrosse League. Just quickly looking back on NLL.com, 2008, Buffalo, Minnesota, New York, and Philadelphia all finished with 10-6 and six records. That was when it was a seven-team Eastern Division. And four of the teams had the same record. Now... We're in a five-team Eastern Division, and all of them could have the same record with two weekends to go. It's unbelievable. Now, I'm going to let my good man Evan Schemenauer and his incredible blog break down all those tiebreakers for you because he's an accountant and he gets paid the big bucks to know these things and figure these things out. But there are a lot of possible scenarios that could go down after we get five, eight, and eight teams. Now, I, I want to see it because I, I just want to see how zany all these tiebreakers are going to get. And according to Evan, there are 10 possible scenarios for three-way ties. And the simpler breakdown is if there are ties... It's the combined winning percentages against the other two teams in a tiebreaker that determines who's first, second, and third. 
But with the way this season has gone and um, some of the sweeps that have happened and some of the sweeps that could still happen, thanks to the Relax boys of Tyson and Patty G for breaking down some of that on Relax this week, like, it could be an absolute mayhem finish. And I'm so excited. From an outsider looking in, it couldn't be any better from a fan perspective to see it this close going down to the wire. Again, I don't really want to go into it because, A, I don't have a voice for it. B, I don't have a mind to try and figure all that out. Go check out Evan's blog on Lax All-Stars. Read it. Try and figure it out yourself. But just know that while it could get a little clearer this weekend, it could get a lot muddier this weekend as well because with five games on deck and a d- direct eastern battle between Rochester and Toronto and all the west or all the eastern teams playing games it's going to be fun i look forward to it so sticking with the east there were two games that really got us to where we are and they were the other two games on the weekend. And let's start with um, the Calgary game and the game winner from Johnny Powis that gave the Black Wolves a very much-needed booster shot to their playoff hopes. Gives it to Crawford, now Crowley. Fed in front. There it is. Aces up for Johnny Powis as he comes up with the winning hand. And the Black Wolves have defeated Calgary 13-12. to Chuck Jaffe and Randy Fraser with the call from the casino as Johnny Palace scores in overtime to give the Black Wolves a one-goal lead over the Calgary Roughnecks. At one point, I thought the Roughnecks were going to run away with that one, but wasn't the case. Steph LeBlanc scoring with about six seconds left to force OT. And if you go back and watch the LeBlanc goal and the Palace goal, Two defensive breakdowns cost Calgary that game. On the LeBlanc goal, I believe it was Mike Carnegie pressures LeBlanc with the ball in the six on five and gets too much on the high side, giving LeBlanc an angle to tuck and go underneath. And with everything going away, the other four players on the offense pushing away, creating space, LeBlanc pretty much had a direct path to the net and a two-on-one after he beats Carnegie. That goal, if if Carnegie just plays him straight up, I don't think the goal happens. And yet it does. LeBlanc scores on the inside, beats Del Bianco, forces overtime. Now on the Paulus goal, it was an unfortunate play of feet getting caught up that let Paulus get open. As the ball is on the right-hander side, Paulus is setting basically... Um, an up-seal pick on Mitch Wild. And as he pushes off Wild, and Wild tries to regain his ground, Wild and Tyler Burton's feet get caught, which causes Wild to lose his footing, go to the turf, and Palace is wide open. And there was no chance Johnny was missing that one. He goes far side, short side, game over. And it's those kind of breaks that can really crush a team. And unfortunately for Calgary, they've probably had their far too many shares of heartbreaking losses and defeats by one goals over the year. 
for them, they can't let that weigh them down too much because they have to continue going forward and moving in a positive direction because they have a big game at home against Buffalo this weekend. And like we talked about, you have to have momentum going forward. And for New England, that's a huge win. It breaks their mini losing streak. Um, They're back into things. They're a game out of a playoff spot. And they themselves have a huge game on the road against Colorado this weekend. And the last time these two teams played was back on February 18th. And Colorado used an 11-4 second half to knock off the Wolves 19-11 in that game. Colorado went 7-for-12 on the power play. But for New England, some life. Just like Georgia created some life when they got a big win over the Toronto Rock as Jesse King would score what would turn out to be the game winner. Screen by Jordan Hall. Jesse King, a good old Victoria BC boy, with the game-winning dunk from behind the net that beats Nick Rose. Now, that goal would go on to be reviewed, and every time I watched the review, I kept on saying to myself, there's no way they're going to count that as a goal. It looks like Shane Jackson, no, sorry, Jordan Hall, is in the crease, hands on the ground, or his foot's on the line, or his stick's on the ground. There's no way that goal's counting. And credit... The Georgia Swarm replay crew, who probably have one of the best replay systems in the entire league, to be able to provide the officials with countless angles to look at that goal. Freeze frames, frame by frame, still frames, whatever you want. They got every possible look. And I still am unsure. Because you never really know when the ball comes out of King or stick and when it gets fully across the goal line and when Hall's hand comes completely off the turf. The other side of the coin is if the official waves that goal off instead of calling it a good goal, I think we go to overtime because there's probably still inconclusive evidence that you can't overturn it to make it a good goal. So Toronto may have been burned by the call by the official, not the replay, the initial call. Because I truly thought when I saw the replay or when I just went back and watched that the official was going to wave it off and then they were going to replay it and maybe call it a goal. But he called it a goal initially, which gave them the opportunity to replay it and find inconclusive evidence. But it's one of those human error things. And I'm not saying the official got it wrong. I don't want to call it a human error. But that's why some people have take issues with replay is because things are so bang-bang in sports that you can't expect the official to get it right every time. And so then sometimes when you go back and you fine-tooth comb some of these calls and they take long time to figure out if it's right or wrong, that sometimes it's right. You know what? Let's just go inconclusive and move on. And I think they did the right thing and to not overturn that goal. I think Eddie Como probably would have lost his mind if it got overturned. Likewise, if it was initially ruled no goal and they reviewed it and called it a goal, Matt Sawyer would have lost his mind. 
But that's just how close it is in the East right now. Literally, probably centimeters or millimeters decided that game. And we still truly don't know if it was the right call. Inconclusive evidence, we'll never know. But what a game that was to come all the way down right to the finish, right to the last whistle, basically. And Jesse King's goal, lifting Georgia over Toronto and creating that log jam once again up at the top. I love it. Finally, before we get out of here, uh, while everything was going on in the sporting world and the National Lacrosse League, um, some of you may not have known or may not have saw that the Arena Lacrosse League Championship final game went down at the Toronto Rock Athletic Center uh, this past weekend, and what a championship game it was between Whitby and Paris. You can actually go onto YouTube and watch most of that game. Just go to the JVI Sports Network stream and you can watch the game. But um, a 12-10 win for the Whitby Steelhawks, and congratulations to everybody involved with that group. Most notably... Um, some really, really good lacrosse dudes. The brain trust and coaching staff of the champions from Whitby, Brad MacArthur, Chad Culp, Gavin Prout, and Ryan McMichael. Uh, there's a great picture of the four of them on the floor with the ALL Cup. Uh, and I, the first thing that stuck out to me was not only uh, the happiness in all those guys' faces, but Gavin Prout's shoes. And if you haven't seen the picture, uh, I tweeted it out. Vintage Lax was the original guys with it. Um, he is wearing a lovely gray suit um, with a nice pink and gray tie on a white shirt. But he has these silver snake skin dress shoes that are just incredible. And I don't want to say they're gross because I've worn some ugly shoes in my day. And I was also known for rocking white shoes for a while. I wore red shoes pretty much the whole weekend in Vegas this weekend. But Prouder's shoes were incredible. And apparently, according to many, those weren't even the best slash worst of the bunch. But beyond that, that's a great group of guys right there. MacArthur, Culp, Prout, McMichael, four good dudes who've given a lot to the game of lacrosse. Congratulations to the four of them. Um, winners, uh, Whitby was an expansion team in the ALL this year. Uh, so congratulations to them and everybody um, amongst that team and in that organization. But it brings me to the thought of what's the Nash Lacrosse League going to do with the ALL? And not of, you know, how they can compete with them or anything like that. But I truly think that if the ALL can get a little bit bigger and maybe we can create a West and East division or something, that it truly can become a farm system. And I think that's what the NLL needs, especially if we're going to have a 25-30 team league. I would almost rather see the NLL cap it at maybe 20 and then create a smaller feeder league of the next 10 teams. Because while we want to have all these teams for players to play on, if we get more expansion teams, that's going to take away a bunch of the talent that's in the ALL right now. So I wouldn't mind seeing some sort of feeder system. We've talked about this before when, you know, we had CLAX and ALL and the PLL and the NALL and all the other LLs that have been out there. I truly believe that 
teams need some sort of feeder system or farm system that they can move players up and down in a place for their draft picks to go to hone their skills without losing them. You know, for example, Toronto drafts a kid, he can't make his roster, and all of a sudden he goes and plays in the ALL and has a, a couple good games, and then New England picks him up. Instead of Toronto being able to draft the kid, he doesn't make the roster, but he's going to go to their farm team, say, their farm team's the Oakville Sock Tricks. I don't know, making up names. But at least they could put their players somewhere. So I think the ALL is turning into be a good thing. It's obviously had its ups and downs, just like all the other kind of startup leagues. But it wouldn't be a bad idea for the National Lacrosse League to try and form some form of partnership with all these burgeoning smaller groups, um, like the CILL, like all the burgeoning box leagues that are in the U.S. right now as well. And we just had the announcement um, from U.S. Box Law that the Ohio Collegiate Lacrosse League has announced their first league team or their teams for their first year. Uh, and that's a huge moment for lacrosse in the United States as well. Because... That is a an area that the game continue needs to continue to grow. We all know the success that it had in Colorado last year. And now with the Ohio Collegiate Boxing League, and you have six new teams, the Aviators, the Bolts, the Guardians, the Rivermen, the Stags, and the Walleyes. No Cleveland LeBrons, as I was hoping for. But regardless, they're going to start June 13th. And that's an incredible spot for collegiate players to grow, to learn, and to truly get an idea of what box lacrosse really is. So while the CBLL and what what U.S. Box is doing in creating this college box league and creating college box championships over the next few years, I know that's what's um, in their future. I think the future of a farm system for the NLL needs to truly be thought about. And I'll leave that with you for the rest of the week because I can already feel my voice leaving me and I need it for Saturday night when the Black Wolves come to town to take on the Colorado Mammoth. The other four games on the schedule, two on Friday, Rochester at Toronto, Saskatchewan at Vancouver, and then on Saturday, as mentioned, the Wolves and Mammoth. Buffalo visits Calgary and then Georgia will meet the Rush in a rematch of last year's Champions Cup final. There's many races going down to the wire in the NL, not just in the Eastern standings, but a playoff race that separates first through third by just four points. Mark Matthews, Dane Smith, and Robert Church. Kevin Crowley has a three-goal lead on Robert Church for the goal-scoring race, and Mark Matthews leads Dane Smith by 10 for the dime race. Other than that, the West is set, and we're in for a great finish in the National Lacrosse League. Want to thank Chris Corbeil as always for joining me on the show. A fantastic guest. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And next week when we come back, we'll have another guest with us and we'll talk more lacrosse. It was a very sad weekend in the sports world. As we come together, hug your loved ones, hug your friends, hug your sons and daughters, and know that we are all with you, Humboldt. My name's Teddy Jenner. At off the crossbar, teddy.jenner at gmail.com is the email. Enjoy the games this weekend and remember, be excellent to each other.